2: This show is brought to you by The Makery,
3: the podcast network for makers.
0: Welcome to Knife Talk. Unfortunately, Craig has lost his voice so we were unable to record this week. So today we are going to get to know the hosts by replaying some of their early interviews. Enjoy. Today,
4: I'll be speaking with Jeff Fader of Fader Knives, and like me, Jeff mainly makes knives for the kitchen, so I'm keen to learn more about his processes. So so hey, Jeff, welcome to the show. Craig, this is a real pleasure. Good, good, good to hear, good to hear. Now- I can't even
3: believe it that I'm on number three. I listened to the podcast number one with Walter Sorrels, incredible. I listened to Alex Steele number two, incredible. And now here's the drop-off of Knife Talk. <laughs> The you had incredible precipitous drop off.
4: <laughs> you Best had some favorite. great warm up acts. This is your moment. <laughs>
3: oh, yeah, it's you're killing me, but that's fine. I'm with you. This is unbelievable.
4: So, so let's try and set the scene. I, I tried to do this at the beginning of each episode. So, um, are you in your workshop at the moment? No, I'm not. I'm in the house. Okay, okay. I'm in a I, quiet room. Is your workshop at home?
3: I, I'm actually, I have two workshops. I have a workshop at home. And I'm building a new shop, uh, about a mile and a half from my home.
4: Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. So is there much of a knife making community where you live? Well, here
3: in the United States, I'm in New York State, which is, um, I'm in actually, I'm about an hour north of New York City and, uh, where I grew up. And there's a lot of blacksmiths and there are a number of knife makers in the Hudson Valley. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, uh, the blacksmithing and the blade community have been really growing, and a lot of it is people be able to see it through Instagram and social media and stuff like that. But there are a number of really high-level guys in the Northeast, of the United States.
4: Yeah, yeah. And why do you think that is? Why do you think it's growing at such a rate? I've I've discussed this before on previous episodes, and everybody seems to come up with this with a similar sort of theme. But I'm just I'm just wondering, curious about your your opinions on that. Well, it's
3: interesting. Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, I was a, I started out as a sculptor, was a steel sculptor, metal worker, and then I, I ended up working for a blacksmith shop. Um, it's called, it, it's called, called now Fine Architectural Metalsmiths, which is connected to Center for Metal Arts, which is the, one of the best blacksmith, sh- uh, learning schools in the Northeast. Nice. And when I was there, uh, 10, 15 years ago, There was really, social media really hadn't kicked in yet, and there, I was working under a lot of blacksmiths by the name of Uri Hoffi and Fred Christ and John Ledford. And these were guys who were, you know, they were incredible wealth information, but you were seeing blacksmiths, um, that were just, you weren't seeing a lot of new guys. And once, and it it seemed like it was a dying, Business and one of the things was with blacksmithing, especially, was there was a, there's a community, there's an organization called Abana in um, the United States. And at the time when I joined 15 years ago, there was only 3,000 members, 3,000 plus members. And with the rise of social media and people seeing what's going on with blacksmiths and now bladesmiths, and with the show Forged in Fire, you're getting a real, uh, you're seeing a lot more. Uh, tool makers, hammer makers, and and craftsmen, especially in the United States, and it's it's incredible. It's it's fascinating.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, from my point of view, I think. Well, I, I mean, I've been making things all my life, but the last sort of fifteen years, they've been digital things, and you know, right. they they're not tangible. They they don't last. You know, uh, my my portfolio is gone within six months. But I I love sort of the whole thing of getting something in your hand making it and feeling it and making something that you can use daily as well you know and i think maybe more and more people are feeling that way maybe i i
3: think there's something to that i mean for me i mean i was an art major and when i was a kid i I, oh my i wasn't allowed to have certain toys that i wanted my father showed me how to use bandsaws and tools and stuff like that so i was making a lot of my own toys at a young age and Hmm. you know swords and bows and arrows and all that stuff and dangerous fun stuff for sure. But <laughs> yeah. what, what, what I, in the beginning, I had certain things that I wanted to make. But then what happened was it wasn't really about the thing that I was going to make, but it was the journey of making something new. Yes. And when I became a sculptor and I went to art school, it was, it was about creating something and then presenting it. And then I was a chef, I was a cook and you know, it was the same thing. It's you're taking uh, raw ingredients and you're using proper techniques and you're giving it to someone you care about, whether it's making a knife or making food or making sculpture. The, 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 the buzz that you get from creating something is palpable. And I used to say, when I used to make sculpture, I used to make, I make these giant fishing lures out of wood and steel and stuff like that. I used to say to people that um, when you're a sculptor or you're a maker, it it doesn't really matter. You could be on a deserted island with no hope of rescue, and you'd still be compelled to make what you want to make. And that's it's just a it's a compulsion. It has to be a compulsion.
4: Yes, yeah. And I suppose with a background as a chef and a blacksmith making making blades. I pulled it's, I, I it's I got inevitable too close isn't it?
3: to the chef. I got a little bit too <laughs> too gun. I shot from the hip with the chef thing. I went to culinary school where I was never a chef. I was a cook for a long time. And I work with a lot of chefs, which is a lot of fun. My partner's a chef. But I got a little bit ahead of myself, Craig. I apologize. <laughs> so,
4: so when did it become a job for you? When did you think this is going to pay the bills? This is going to, you know, this is going to keep my family happy. This is going to be what I need to be doing.
3: Well, we're still in the make the family happy stage. I uh, I was a sculptor for a long time, 20 years, and I had galleries and I was working on stuff. And basically what happened was I was, I was helping at this. A friend of mine, John Ledford, started a, a school called... Um, the Hudson Valley Ironworks. And we were bringing a lot of knife makers like Matt Paul of MP Knives and, uh, Darren Fisher, who's an incredible blacksmith. And we would have blacksmiths and jewelers. And I was teaching sculpture classes and I started helping with Matt Paul, who does incredible bushcraft knives. And I had a, you know, a history of, of forging knives and for, not forging knives, but forging, you know, ornamental ironwork. And yeah. I was a, you know, a blacksmith you know, a, busy blacksmith for quite a while and um I just started fooling around when you're forging knives when you're forging anything you can always usually have a couple things in the in the oven so or in the forge I should say and it was easy for me while I was working on some railings to have a couple knives to fool around and kind of work out you know, the proper way, the best way for me to do knives. And, and then all of a sudden I started getting commissions and I kept it very quiet with my wife because I didn't want her to think I was crazy. And I started making more, you know, hunting the style knives and then forging, you know, do like brute to forge style knives. Yeah. And then um, I started getting commissions and then it came to the point where I was getting so many commissions that it was hard for me to just, not go to the next step. And I approached my good friend, Tony Ayazi, who used to be the executive chef at uh, Oriole and now is, owns this great, uh, computer company, uh, uh, a tech company called Shoebox. And I needed help. And he stepped in and became my partner. And we're still at the growing stage in terms of, uh, you know, we're on it. We have a payroll company and we're paying each other and we're paying rent on places and paying lawyers and paying all this stuff, but we're not, uh, knives are not, uh, knives aren't sending me to the beach yeah yeah you know what i mean we're still in the growing stages but it's been really great
4: yeah and it's that thing isn't it how how will that scale you know hand making a beautiful knife you know how do you scale, well, scale that well
3: right at this point now i'm doing everything and i've always really felt like i mean i'm not I, I i feel like i'm still young at as a knife maker for sure and i'm that's the best part the best part is you know, meeting and talking to other knife makers. I'm really excited. I'm going to the blade show in Atlanta in a couple months and the meeting, uh, really, really amazing bladesmiths. And I'm really the, the, the idea that I'm going to be growing as a, you know, I'm on a journey, I'm on my own journey and, and the level that I'm at, and I'm looking forward to getting better and better and better at every knife you make, you know, and every knife you make, you pick something new up and you make it better. And, and it's just, it's, it's, it's an incredible journey. And I just, a real quick story, really, this is actually perfectly, this is a good story. Yesterday I went to, um, I went to this place, this, uh, famous restaurant supply store for chefs. It's called JB Prince. And I was there with my partner and we were there with a couple other people. And we were looking and we saw they have incredible knives from, from all over the place. But a lot of them are, you know, company made knives, Hanks Willings and all that. Yeah. And then there was this one knife there from, uh, Mariko, um, Malmasi. I hope I'm saying his name right. Um, uh, Fire Arts. And it was, it was sitting on this uh, wooden block in the case. And it was just stunning to the point where I started to get blue. I started to get a little bit blue because just like this guy <laughs> is just top of the line. It was an integral chef's knife, which you know, an integral chef's knife is where the bolsters part yeah. of the blades forged through the, and the bolsters kind of forged into the blade. And, I was reading this little note and it was this clean knife. It had koa, curly koa, and everything was slick. And it looked like a, it looked like just a beautiful steel knife and everything like that. Nothing special. I saw a little hamon in it and it was just, you know, beautiful. And then there was this note on it and the note said, well, this is the, this is Mariko's knife. He's giving me all the details. And then it says, this is a Damascus knife. That's, and then all of a sudden I read a Damascus knife and I'm looking at the knife and it's, Shiny. It's got you know the the hand buffed. It, it doesn't look like an It just I see like a carbon steel knife with the hamon. Yeah. And then I read, keep reading, and I'm and I'm and all of a sudden I have this. I can't believe it. What he did was he he made it so clean, and he it didn't etch it. He didn't etch the blade. Right. Yeah. So his his idea was that when you work it, you know when you're you, the natural use of this knife will reveal the the Damascus.
4: Ah, right, so like, yeah.
3: So it's like instead of the whole idea of a lot of people get bummed out when they have a, a carbon steel chef's knife and they're bummed out when it starts to patina, he's he's allowed, he's like changed the whole idea. Well, he might not be – I've never seen it before. And so when you're using a knife during daily use, it just – you slowly reveal the the Damascus. And I'm, and I'm, I'm just like, God, this is incredible <laughs> and fantastic. And I'm telling my partner and I'm looking at it and I'm showing him. I'm saying, you see that? And this is what's going to happen. And then next to me, there's this guy, this cook who's been overhearing us. And he just kind of gets closer to me and he goes, hey, you like that knife? And I said, yeah, it's incredible. And I, you know, I'm just, you know, just like losing my mind over this, over this knife. And he goes, I got something better for you. You got to go down <laughs> to, then he named another store and he says, you got to go down there, man, because there's a, a knife with a white handle. And he gets closer as he's speaking, he's speaking quietly, he's looking over his shoulder. He says, this knife is so, this knife is unbelievable. It's so nice. You're going to see it and you're going to get an erection. And I immediately (laughs) thought, this, it just like completely shut the whole conversation. It was really funny because what he was basically saying was he didn't, he had no real concept of, you know, that level of knife, but he was just trying to involve himself. And it was this very odd New York moment, but it was amazing because (laughs) I was looking at the, the the incredible craftsmanship of you know this incredible knife from, from uh, Mariko. and then this guy was like trying to sell me on a white handled uh, Zwilling something like that. It was yeah. pretty funny.
4: <laughs> but that's a really interesting concept of that of Damascus unetched and letting it reveal its beauty over time. It you know it I had never seen it before. It would make I've you want to use before. the item more, which is brilliant.
3: Well, that's yeah. I mean, that was the whole thing. I mean, you're totally reversing the idea of 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 like, uh, how do I keep it so it doesn't do that? And then it's almost like you want to work it harder to force the etch by cooking. And it, it was just like a fascinating it was just fascinating. But it was like it made me blue in the beginning because it was just like, <laughs> God damn, my, my knives will never be this nice. And then all of a, And then all of a sudden at the end, I was like, I'm looking forward to making, you know, the more I make. The better I get, and seeing this is going to inspire me to work harder for the next one.
4: Yes, yeah, yeah. So let's, let's talk a bit about process. So, sure. of, of all the the many processes involved in making a great knife, you know, steel selection, the forging, the profiling, grinding, all the rest of it. What what's your favorite, and what's your least part of making a knife?
3: That is an awesome question, <laughs> um, because because I, you know, I I started out doing a lot of uh, Forge knives, and I st- and now I'm starting to get back into doing more forge knives, and with the new shop and having I'm having a power hammer built, I plan on doing more Damascus, and I did some Damascus with um, Aaron Wilburn of Wilburn Forge. the The part I love the best is, I would say. I don't know. You know, I, I like the, I like talking to my customers because the way my business is a little bit different than a lot of guys is I usually, we have a conversation and I really try to make customized knives for the particular customer. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I do, we do a consultation and then I'll really kind of go with what you want to do. And I, I really enjoy meeting. The customer and talking to the customer before I even made anything. I also do a lot of watercolors beforehand so I can get some colors, you know, squared away. Mm. I really enjoy that. Um, I, I'm not crazy about the hand sanding because, you know, <laughs> and I'm not crazy about dealing with plunge lines, but, uh, yeah. other than that, it's, yeah, I love working with the customer. That's my favorite part is having a relationship with the customer and trying to make them something that they, have Envisioned something that they want and um, something that I could provide, and I um, I like heat treating too. I like heat treating. That's the scary part for me, you know. Um, whether you're if you're doing a stainless steel and you're 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 putting in between two pieces of aluminum with uh um with some compressed air and hoping it's it flat, or you know you're, you're or you're bringing your knife up to 15, 1,500 and hoping that when you dunk it into the your oil it doesn't warp. You know, there's a little bit of nervousness there. That's uh, it's always very exciting.
4: Yes, yeah. And do you generally use one kind of steel, like 1095 D2 or stainless, or uh, do you just whatever the job needs? Yeah, you you'll use whatever you think is best for that job.
3: When I started, I use a lot when I was forging knives. I started with a lot of 1095, yeah, um, and it just became very easy for me to get a get a get a hold of. And then in the the people my customer a lot of my customers wanted stainless steel so I was getting um, 440c stainless steel and I've fooled around a little bit with um, some other stainless steels um, but you know it, I don't you know yeah and then you know with Damascus obviously you're getting you know into that 15n
2: yeah
4: okay so so. Know like most creatives you probably got many other creative outlets out there um and i know sort of offline you've told me about a few of those but what do you get up to when you're not making knives
3: well i i was formally trained as a sculptor and um i do a lot of wood carving i do these I, I when i was in college i started doing all these uh um giant fishing lures so i do these giant fishing lure sculptures and, um, it's, you know, totally different, um, mechanics, but it's the same outline in terms of like, you have an idea and then you kind of, um, you kind of cut it out and then carve, you have your plan and then you kind of execute. So yeah. I do a lot of these, uh, giant lure sculptures and, um, uh, that's something that, uh, I've always loved to do. And, you know, I feel like it's got me ready to make knives, you know, and it's also, it's also map groups. My last, um, project was I did a, uh, I did a, uh, installation of 60 needlefish lures and I had a friend who was a bronze caster and he was, uh, knocking out a lot of casts of, uh, uh, bronze sculptures. And then what he would do was he was, uh, uh, he was telling me that you just have to recast them. And I, as a, just to kind of, you know, give it to him, I decided that I was going to make, carve and paint 60 identical Fishing lure sculptures. So it was this, it was total madness. It drove me crazy. It was just really difficult, but it allowed me, you know, the mindset to actually do knives in batches. So like now I do, um, these, these chef signature series knives where I collaborate with a chef. And then we'll design something, and then what we'll do is we'll sell a set of 12 uh, limited series, and then I'll make all 12 at the same time. So actually, doing the sculptures, the 60 needlefish, allowed me the, uh, I mean, it gave me like the the, the blueprint for making sculptures in ba- uh, making my, my mistake, making knives in batches, which was a huge yeah. help.
4: Yeah. Okay. i have I've been looking at them today, actually, on Instagram, and they, they look fantastic.
3: Really yeah, great. they're fun. They're fun. Oh, I oh. actually started doing those because I was. I had a studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, back in after I graduated college, and it was a welding shop, and and um, it was a very dark and you know gray, and and then I started doing these little painted wooden sculptures to kind of brighten the place up a little bit. So. Actually, those, that color kind of fits into – I really like for the handles of my chef knives especially, I really like high-contrast colors. Yes. So I've been doing with a lot of, uh, of high-contrast colors, which have you know harkens back to the days of being an artist, I think.
4: Now, today I'll be speaking with the maker of some of the most beautiful chef knives that I've ever seen. It's the incredible Mareko Malmasi. So welcome to the show, Mareko. How are you?
2: Hi, I'm doing well, Craig. Hi, how are you doing? It's uh it's a pleasure to be on and I really appreciate you uh inviting me to come and have a chat with you. Yeah, well again, thank you thank you for taking the time out. So so are you in the shop today? I, I am in the shop today. I did find a nice quiet spot for me to uh to have a, a conversation with you, which is kinda of difficult when I'm sharing the space with three other makers who yeah. are all doing their own kind of thing. <laughs> uh, but you know, hide their hammers. You. Hide the hammers. Yeah. That's the best way. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of them. <laughs> so, so
4: for those that don't know of your work, can you can you explain to the listeners what you do?
2: Yeah, so I specialize. Uh, well, let me back up a little bit. I'm a bladesmith, uh, and which means I actually forge my blades. And but I actually got my start uh, doing stock removal, mm. um, which I think is a great place for a lot of people to start. Um, but I specialize in kitchen knives culinary knives um the reason that i focus on culinary knives uh one is because when i got my start i worked for a, a culinary knife maker who i believe has been on your show actually before bob kramer oh and, i think i've uh, heard of the guy yeah i think i've heard yeah of him. yeah <laughs> and uh and it's also it's the knife i know the best yeah. uh so i worked in kitchens myself for uh off and on um, jumping between jobs for around, a, uh, about, about 70 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so all out of all the different kind of edged tools that I could make that take the form of a knife, culinary knives are the ones that I know the best. I know from my own experience, uh, how they should feel weigh balance. Uh, and you know, that's of course, based off my perspective, but, um, you know, it, it's it's the product that I feel like I could stand behind yeah. the best.
4: Yeah, and I mean, speaking yeah. to the you know makers of chef knives, which I've done you know quite a few on the show, they've they've made specifically chef knives. They've all had yeah. a, they've all had a background in professional kitchens. You know, so it's, sure. it's a tool that they're used to handling.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, and I think realistically, for anybody to. Um, to, to make a, a tool as best as it possibly can, it, it helps for them to have experience using that tool. Uh, it makes it, I mean it would make no sense for me to make fly fishing rods. I don't know how to fly fish, you know, <laughs> and so so there. You go. Yeah, okay. But well, you've already mentioned that you
4: you trained you know with the master Bob Kramer. So so how did the you master. manage that? How did you get that gig? Uh,
2: it, it, that was actually just absolutely sheer pure luck um i was actually working in a restaurant at the time as well as uh moonlighting as a an assistant salsa dancing instructor um <laughs> slash community performer slash uh yeah whatever and uh, i had a friend who worked for him who had just started working for him uh helping him with his bookwork and orders and organizing a little bit in his office space hmm. Um, and this is just before his article in the New Yorker came out in 2008. And, um, and so she started working for him. I was working a job that I was not very happy in. Um, and you know, I was, I, I was working with her and I said, you know, uh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing with myself. I'm 24 years old and I feel like I have absolutely no direction. And she's like, Oh, you should meet this guy that I just started working for. He's really interesting. I think you guys would get on really well. Uh, you know, he's been all over the world. He even was a clown at one point in his life. And she's like, yeah, he's a bladesmith. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? He's a bladesmith. Hmm. She's like, well, you know, it's like blacksmithing, but he makes knives. And I just, the, with the most puzzled look on my face, I'm sure. I was like, people still do that. Like, I had <laughs> absolutely no idea. And she's like, yeah, and it's great. He makes really great stuff. But I think you guys could get would get along really well. So um, uh, let's let's get that going. And so we worked it out, and we ended up actually meeting at the pub I was working at. Um, and over a couple beers and some fish and chips, we chatted about life a little bit. And I was kind of just at a lot, like I said, at a loss. And uh, she thought that he could help. Um, helped me with from his own experience of being all over the place and whatnot um, helped bestow some wisdom I guess upon me and um, it ended up being a uh, transitioning into an interview in a way and by the end of our conversation he offered me an opportunity to work in his shop and this and I think I recognize now that that's because he was anticipating a a major influx of interest in his work and, and he was already backlogged at the time. Mm. And so, and this article in the New Yorker was coming out and it would be idiotic to not take orders when that happens. Um, and so he was looking for somebody to pull into the shop and to help, uh, even if it was just to help keep things clean, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, how long did that last? How long were you working with Bob? Yeah, I worked for Bob for three years, almost exactly uh, two years and eleven and a half months, or something like that. Yeah. Oh, nice. And nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, I worked for him for almost three years.
4: Yeah. So, so it's always been kitchen knives for you then. So, the first knife that you made would have been a kitchen knife, and just it's what you've always done.
2: Yeah, actually. So, the first knife I ever actually made uh, was a kind of hunting uh slash like fighting knife for oh. my brother uh he had just joined the military and he was graduating from basic, basic training at the time and that was the very first knife i ever made uh and then from then on out it's pretty much been culinary knives with uh w- with the hunting knife slash uh non culinary knife here and there yeah. even letter openers from time to time yeah <laughs> so so what in your opinion makes for for a great kitchen knife i mean let let's talk you know a standard sort of chef knife um well i think so opinions and excuse my language but uh, i think the old adage is opinions are like assholes everybody's got one everybody thinks everybody else's stinks and the reality is that for everybody out there in the world they have their own opinion based on the ergonomics of their own bodies, their own preferences, the experiences they had cooking with their grandmothers or the experiences they have from going to culinary school and working professionally for several years um, to somebody who is just an enthusiast at home. So in that same way, I build my knives based off my experience. Um, And so for me, I like a uh, a medium, well, I guess a medium long length, so around nine inches, or uh, I think that's about 220 millimeters or so, which is I think just under nine. But um, uh, and I like a nice distal taper with a little bit of flexibility out at the tip, especially for a chef's knife. Um, you know, realistically, the chef's knife is a general purpose knife that is designed, or ideally designed, to uh, at least in the Western uh, I guess ideology uh, to cover a series of tasks uh, that might be uh, all the way down to where you might use a, a utility knife or a, a small petty all the way up to a big slicing or breaking down of uh, proteins or large fruits and vegetables um, so nice and flexible out at like the outer the, the last third uh, out to the tip um, uh, and to back back of the heel, the first, I don't know, maybe a couple inches or so with a little bit more beef so that it can withstand some press cutting um, through chicken bones or, you know, I, I do press cuts through uh, dry bamboo sti- uh, chopsticks uh, just to get a feel for how the edge geometry feels back at that area. Because like I said, it, um, the, the chef's knife, Ultimately covers a, a, a large portion of the spectrum, I guess, of tasks that you might be doing in your preparation work for cooking. Yeah. Uh, and then when it, and when it comes to handle, I like a, a nice, um, I guess, a highly contoured handle, something that feels really comfortable in my hand. And I think that that uh, I guess perspective comes especially from my experience working for Bob, his handles are very highly contoured, really nice feeling night, uh, handle shapes. Um, and most of the commercial stuff that you might find out there usually has some sort of flats or something like that, which is fine. Um, but for me, I really like a nice contoured handle that feels like I'm like, I'm shaking somebody's hand. I want it to be a natural extension, uh, of me, because realistically, the relationship that we have with the actual, the business end of the knife is through that handle. And, uh, in my working in in kitchens and restaurants, it was, uh, you know, a lot of prep work, a lot of standing, chopping, dicing, slicing, breaking down stuff and preparing foods, um, for hours on end. And it has to feel comfortable for, uh you to be able to want to do that for long periods of time and i hated it and part of that reason is because i hated holding on to the knives it just was not as enjoyable and uncomfortable as uh, i thought it could be Hmm. and so so it really sort of
4: index then doesn't it index into your hands you've got a a nice sort of comfortable but, but solid grip yeah Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, a lot of makers are concentrating solely on maybe Japanese designs. But yours definitely sure. definitely have more of a sort of Western or a European aesthetic, particularly on handles. So, yeah, I mean, I mean that's my favorite style too. But um, are you sure. often asked to make sort of Japanese-inspired designs and things that you're not particularly comfortable with?
2: Um, I'm actually really comfortable with – all the different styles and designs um, I do. I actually get a pretty even uh, request for Western style blades and Japanese inspired blades. Um, because like I said, like uh, everybody has their own preferences and as to what they're comfortable with using. And I, I when I talk to a customer uh, on top of discussing trying to figure out you know what are they using then actually using the knife for so that I could tailor the geometry a little bit towards that um, I I uh, I give them I or I, I tell them you know this is their opportunity to kind of design a knife um, themselves and and I consider myself a kind of tailor of cutlery in that way that I can make. The, the blade a little wider, or a little longer, or an odd length, or or a very specific kind of grind. I can do pretty much any kind of grind, uh, any kind of handle shape. I can shrink the handle. I can make it larger if you have larger hands. Uh, and so, yeah, I uh, I do get I do gravitate towards the uh, I guess the uh, the the Japanese inspired style knives a little bit more. As, uh, I like them. Um, in the fact that the, the geometry, or I guess not necessarily geometry, but the, the blade, uh, the edge profile, I, I really like that a lot. I, my Western style knives do, um, have a very kind of German chef's knife profile. Hmm. Um, but I, and that also comes from my experience working with Bob, but one of the things I was hated about or I guess not hated, but strongly disliked about <laughs> European style chef's knives is so they always have a really steep curve uh, up to the tip at the at the outer uh, end yeah, of that, the knife. Yeah, that sort of rocker. And yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I still have that in my knives, but they emulate more of a of a Japanese uh, cutting profile, where you can still rock the blade up high enough to chop you know, rock chop, something that's two, two and a half inches tall, uh, without the tip of the blade digging into the board. But it also allows you easier access to the tip. If you are going to, again, use that general purpose knife to do some work that maybe you might typically reach for a, a utility knife to do. And that was part of the w- reason I I've specifically designed that geom or that, sorry, that edge profile. Uh, yeah, i both in my Western-inspired style inspired and Japanese-inspired uh, Blades. Hmm. And I really like what you said there about that sort of
4: tailored approach as well. And that does carry yeah. through on your site, doesn't it? So, you, are, you know, you ask a series of questions um, and then you go to work on a design. And I really like that. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, you're, yeah, I think – oh, sorry. So, sorry, after you, after you. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it, 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 I think it's a, a very rare opportunity uh, for people to – to really get a chance. I mean, that's the purpose of a custom knife, right? Mm. It's them designing the knife, a customer designing their knives, um, to fit themselves, to be custom fit for them. And, um, especially people who have a lot of experience, um, they, they have very specific things that they like or wish that they had, uh, or, wish were uh, features in a knife that they don't they've never experienced uh which is this, again the same perspective kind of that i came from and the reason i've designed my knives the way that i do uh, is because essentially it's a series of things that i was like damn it i wish this that and the other thing were different on this knife and then when i started making my own i was able to put those into the knife um those design features um and you know there are a lot of people who don't necessarily know what they they want and they and they lean on me a little bit more for uh, advice. And that's when I start talking to them about, you know, like I, I had a customer actually perfect example. They, they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm interested in I like, or sorry, they said, I like the Nikiri and a Santoku, but I also, you know, I like the Western style and I'm like, well, how do you cut with the knife? Mm. Are you doing press cuts or sorry, uh, push cuts or pull draw cuts? Uh, if that's the case, then the kiri's is going to be great. But if you do a lot of rock chopping in your cooking or in your prep work for, your, for cooking, the Nikiri is going to be absolutely worthless to you because it's pretty much an almost entirely flat cutting edge that abruptly turns at an angle uh, down at the tip.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices.
2: If that's the case, if you do more rock chopping, maybe a santoku or more of a gyudo profile is going to, you know, suit you better. As well as, you know, what kind of materials are you actually cutting? Are you you vegetarian? You're never going to come into contact with bones? Um, Then, great. Like, I can take the edge geometry a little bit thinner for you. Because, you know, you don't have to worry about the edge being deflected off anything super hard that could potentially uh, chip the material out or damage the cutting edge. Um, And then also, you know, if somebody doesn't have as much experience with uh, a knife and they are an enthusiast at home and they're looking for... uh, something that when they come home from their job as a lawyer or whatever they do professionally to cook, they they want a knife that's going to help encourage that experience and make it as joyful and as pleasurable as they want, or as, as it can be without it being a chore, right? Mm, yeah, and, definitely. Yeah. yeah. But if they have less experience with taking care of or maintaining a, a uh, you know, especially a high carbon steel knife, because they have a, t- a tendency to be a bit harder than a stainless steel knife or most stainless steel knives. Um, then I will actually leave the edge geometry just a pinch heftier uh, to help um, encourage more strength or guess more support behind that leading edge uh, hmm. for them, because there's light, more likely to be accidental misuse or uh, contact with things that could damage. Yeah, um, so a bit more forgiving, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Exactly.
4: Okay, so let, let's talk about your Damascus patterns. I mean, they're the, sure. probably the best that I've seen. So I know <laughs> that you do your your thing once a week, where you you know you 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 sort of drill down the, the pattern and you show how it's being made and that kind of thing. Sure. Do you have a favourite pattern?
2: Um, I'm constantly playing with my pattern styles and I'm always, I have kind of a little black book full of designs that I've still have never, uh, actually attempted there. A lot of them are mostly theoretical right now based Mm. on knowing what a certain process is going to do to the material and how it's going to move to the the design. I see things out in the world that I'm like, Oh man, I could I think I could make a Damascus pattern out of that, um, but then I have to—I quickly sketch it out or take a picture, and then I go back home, and then I kind of—I have to reverse engineer that process of how that would work, uh, which is kind of—it can be really challenging at times. But um, sorry to answer your question really uh, more concisely. You know, I one of my favorite patterns still is. Um, a topography what I call a topography pattern uh most makers call the tama- it random Damascus but I call it topography because random Damascus doesn't necessarily mean anything to a customer other than sure maybe the pattern's a little random but to help give it more character I like it looks like I'm looking at a topographical map so I'm mm-hmm. going to call it topography to Damascus but anyways topography has always been a, a standard um that I've I've always loved I really like um some of the more flowing mosaic patterns, um, like a explosion pattern, W's explosions uh, that literally look like explosions uh, emanating from a certain uh, pinpoint area, mm-hmm. as well as um, I've. So the way that I do my standard grinding my knives is a compound grind or an S grind. So that's a combination of a, a hollow grind above a convex cutting edge. Yeah. And when I forge a my style blade, part of that grind actually cuts down into, uh, that core material, revealing more of that core material. Um, and at first it really pissed me off actually, cause, um, cause the kind of the idea is that you're, um, you're you're protecting the core material with this cladding but since the steel's all carbon that's not necessarily the case at that point it's more aesthetics mm-hmm. and i realized like it kind of looks more like an arctic coastline and so that's what i've started calling that it looks like little icebergs and islands off the coast of some craggy icy coal area mm. or place you know <laughs> uh so that's another fun one i really enjoy
5: yeah
4: yeah well i mean the videos that you put on instagram i mean they're all very sort of highly instructional too Um, So do you find out that that takes time away from producing knives or is it just something that you can just do on the fly and carry on with
2: work? At first, it was really – it could be very time-consuming, but Mm. after a little bit of practice and uh, uh, I would say probably the most challenging part is just getting comfortable talking in front of A camera, even if it's your own camera pointed at your own face and you're holding it, it still can be challenging because in your mind's eye, you're thinking of all the people that possibly could be watching potentially uh, later on and seeing your, at least me, my stupid face talking to people. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so it it initially started out uh, requiring a little bit more time, but as you know, it's, it's a learning curve. And once you get the hang of it and you, and you know uh, how to edit or how to break down the video, I actually have stopped. I used to want to do a lot of editing. I do like almost zero editing now. And I think it's because uh, part of that is because um, the real value isn't necessarily in the production quality, but Mm -hmm. in the actual Quality of the content, a production quality is great, and it is always going to enhance the content. Um, but in a, in a, in a, I guess a platform or a venue uh, like Instagram, uh, especially through Instagram stories, but as well as like when I'm doing a video that's more educational in a way or trying to be more informative, the information is what's most valuable. Yeah, And I yeah. could spend hours trying to edit myself and cut back and go back over and repeat things, um, but. You know, stumbling over my words like I'm guarantee I'm doing already done a lot uh, talking with you right now, and I'll do more. But uh, stumbling over your words and saying the wrong things, and then having to back up and correct myself because um, I say words that have absolutely nothing to do with I'm actually with what I'm actually <laughs> talking about. Um, it just it, it makes the information that much more I feel like more relatable. More it brings a, kind of a more of a human element to it instead of it being like so clean cut and, and overproduced. I think uh, if you can afford to take the time and and do quality production, I say do it. Um, But if you can't, um, that's okay too. I mean, again, it's, it comes down to the the value and the quality of the, the actual content that you're providing.
3: Tell me how you kind of got started doing knives. I know that you weren't a metal worker to begin with. How did you, how did, what's your story?
4: <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a strange one, different to most people. Um, but, you know, up until about four years ago, when I, I started making, now about four years ago, um, I'd always been a web designer. So, you know, for, you know, 20 odd years, right. I'm, you know, I'm old. I'm really old. You're not that old. Um, but if you do a job for over 20 years, you, you sort of become part of a community then, you know? Right. You know, and I, I love being part of a community. I love the support. I love, I love the shared knowledge that a community brings and all that kind of stuff. So I started putting on various events and so on for designers, um, you know, starting with little conferences, you know, maybe sort of 200 people, growing to, you know, a few conferences a year with, you know, up to 1,200 people. You know, wow. they're, they're quite big events. People from all over the world would come, that kind of thing. Wow. Um, I also set up like a co-working studio right in the middle of my home city, which is Cardiff, so people could come and work and collaborate, you know, teach and learn from each other. Um that also then turned into sort of a publishing company. So we were publishing design books from sort of high-end, you know, high-profile designers, um, which meant over time I was doing, you know, more and more admin and less creating. I wasn't really making stuff, you know, just firefighting, admin, that kind of thing. And to be honest, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really earning much money. I right. was doing lots for the community, but, you know, struggling to make ends meet, really. Right.
3: So what made it, you start to, like, get making things, like physically? Well, that,
4: that's – that's it's coming. It's coming. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I mean, it it wasn't healthy for me. That I think that's the main thing. You know, spending 14 hours in front of a screen seven days a week. You know, it's probably not healthy for anybody. So, I decided to do just one more event, which was a little different. So we hired a sort of retreat kind of venue, and you know, surrounded by acres and acres of woodland. And I put on what I was calling a, a summer camp for designers. Wow. So instead of the usual high profile designers come in and, you know, speaking in a stuffy theater, which was, you know, what I'd done for years before that, um, it was outdoors and, you know, attendees that we'd come, we would do workshops, we did, you know, screen printing, we did, you know, a making bread, we did a making beer workshop, um, just all hands on stuff. But the, the favorite one was, you know, we all walked into the woods, we cut down a tree and we all just carved spoons. It was like a car, you know, spoon carving workshop. Huh. And I loved, I loved it. You know, at, I thought, this is what I've been missing. I haven't made anything for so long. So going back then to the city centre office, you know, there's not really much scope for wood, you know, yeah. <laughs> carving wooden spoons, you know. Um, so I started making stuff with what I knew, which was code, you know. So I, I'm making, you know, way before all these, uh, you know, these these uh Internet of Thing devices now, as they're called, you know, that turn on your lights from your phone and turn on your heating, that kind of thing. I I was making these kind of things with little Arduinos and Raspberry Pis, that kind of thing. Um, But obviously, to be a product, they needed some sort of housing, you know, some sort of, you know, something to put in to make it into a real thing. Um, so, you know, you jump on YouTube and I'm looking at people, you know, vacuum forming plastics and making these intricate boxes and so on. Um, and you go, you, you know what it's like. You go down that YouTube rabbit hole, you know, where, you know, six hours later, you're still looking at people making these crazy things. Yeah. And I, I came across a video. I, th- I, I can't remember now, but I think it was probably a Walter Sorrell's video. Um, making a knife. So I was, huh. I was like, Hey, I'm going to make, I'm going to try making a knife. Um, Made a knife and that was it. Had the bug, the sickness, you know?
3: Well, so, so you, but you never really, you didn't, you didn't have any
4: experience with metalworking in general before you did. None at all. So, you know, in school we did, you know, we did, we made a bottle opener, that kind of thing, you know, but that was, that was, you know, 25 years before this, you know? Right. Yeah, so it was quite a strange thing. So, you know, I was still running a design business, you know, and a co-working studio and an events business and, you know, publishing business. And, you know, I was making knives, too, on the side, was you know, just for family and friends at that point. Right. Um, but eventually, you know, I knew things had to change. I was, you know, I was working all these hours that, you know, God gave us. Um, didn't really enjoy it, you know. I wasn't really making any money. Health wasn't good. Stress levels were off the charts. And, you know, and my wife, who was my business partner, partner, um she 's the smartest person I know, and, you know, right. and this, I, I knew this was just holding her back the, you know this these businesses they weren 't my dream, and they, they certainly weren 't hers so we we decided to change everything. we shut the businesses down, we sold virtually all of our possessions <laughs> we Whoa. we jumped in a car and we drove to France, and we decided to spend two weeks just looking for a house and then we were going to start our new dream, so for my wife, which was to start her new business which is sort of adult education that kind of thing and for me just to be making knives so that was just over two and a half years ago and we we haven't looked back since wow so you just you sold everything and you drove to france we what did what was you to go to france well you know it better climate in the uk um oh. not too far <laughs> so we could still get get yeah. back and see family and friends um, but you know, cheap to live, um, sun always shines. It was, you know, it made sense for us and, um, wow. people thought we were crazy. You know, we had these businesses and I think you're crazy, <laughs> but everybody thought we were doing really well, but you know, we, we weren't, we were just working all the hours and you know, it was just stressful. It wasn't good. And you know, we weren't doing what we love doing. So yeah, we just hopped in a car and started a new life. <laughs> wow. So he, so just
3: to just jump back just a little bit and, and then, um. So you watched the Walter Sorrells video, maybe you watched a couple of other, um, you know, YouTube videos. Yeah. And then you just called up and bought some steel. And how did you heat treat, how, you know, how did you do it all? You
4: had minimal tools. Yeah, well, very minimal. So I bought one of those, you know, those 1x30 little bandsaws, you know, these, yeah. not bandsaws, sorry, um, grinders. Right. Um, Terrible things, but, you know, they, they yeah. did the job. Um, I got a little devil forge, a little gas devil forge. Which is, you know, only sort of six inches deep. It's this tiny thing, right? Um, and you know, these first knives—they were well, they were terrible, as you'd imagine. They're supposed to be terrible. Yeah, yeah. The first ones are supposed to be terrible. Well, it's not just the first one. I'd say for the first year, everyone was terrible. The first thirty have to be garbage. Yeah, and and that's the only way you can't—you can't
3: really, you, you know, you can't really learn unless you actually kind of say, "All right, next time I don't, I'm not going to do that." Yeah. So that's that's how you get to that point. So that's that's quite an investment from one Walter Sorrells video.
4: Yeah. 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 And, but it was that thing you just said about that first one, you know, it is terrible. The next 30 are terrible. But, you know, I'd probably spend a year and I'd probably make a knife every day for that time. And every, wow. every time I made a knife, it was like, oh man, I just want to sort of recall all those old ones, you know? Right. And, you know, when, right. when I, when I, was, when I was making stuff with code, I could do that. I could just, you know, update all the code. Everybody's got right. the newest version. Um, And it was just so frustrating that, you know, everyone was getting so much better, which is great but then you've got these knives out there that you're just not happy with. So, But those are also milestones
3: in your life. They you know, are. When you're, when yeah. you're, and, and I think that it's very important to see growth in regards to whatever you're doing. So, you know, you, if you're ever really truly satisfied with anything that you do, you're you're probably not really seeing what's really going on. So when I understand what you're saying, because I, I mean I look at knives that I made and I say the same thing. I'm like the next one's going to be better, hmm. but you can't really go back. You yeah. got to like just look forward and know that the next one's going to be better. But other than that, I'm I'm riveted by your story. So now you're in France. <laughs> yep. And now you're in France. And now you're you're you bought a house. You and your, your wife's teaching adult education,
4: and then you're building up your shop. Yeah. Still building the shop. Still building it. It's, it's ongoing. <laughs> but good. I, I did that thing that a lot of people do where you make it maybe your first sort of 30, 50 knives. And you think, right, I'm an acceptable standard now, you know. So I get a website up and I start selling to the public. Um, and two months later, you know, I'm discovering all these great knife makers on Instagram and Facebook and so on. Yeah. And you just think, man, I'm just, uh, you know, they're in a different league. So what I did, so when I, I just mentioned, you know, you wish you could call them all back, you know? Um, so I stopped. I took the website down. Um, this was probably about 18 months ago. I took the website down for four months and I literally just spent every working hour in the, in the workshop, just, just nailing these knives, just, you know, knife after knife after knife. Um, right. and you know, I, I wasn't selling these. It was a very conscious decision that, you know, I've got a draw back in the workshop with, probably about 150 knives in there you know um but each one was getting better and better and better and it was only to that point where you know those th- th- those gains started reducing so you know i was happy with with every knife you know i just yeah. sort of come to a happy medium and that's when you know made a new website start putting them up and started selling knives again um but i see that a lot i see a lot of people making knives and you know they they make you know 3 4 knives and next you know they're selling their knives and you just think wow I made that mistake too, you know?
3: <laughs> well, you know, that's very funny that you say that because I actually was wanted to, this is something I really wanted to talk about was, you know, in regards to, you know, when you're first starting out, when people first starting out making knives and different experiences and different things that you, you know, your experiences are different than other people's experiences. And um, my experience is, a, you know, I started out as a sculptor and then I ended up working for a, for a blacksmithing company. And I was actually, my into, I wasn't making knives until, you know, 10, 10, 15 years since I started blacksmithing. Uh-huh. You know, I didn't even pick touch a knife until I was forging railings and uh, AI tools and stuff like that. But why I'd never made a knife until I never forged a knife until years and years later. Uh-huh. And it's interesting because my experience is different than your experience, which is different than a lot of your listeners experience. And I don't think that I think that all these different experiences are good and being able to watch YouTube videos are good and to be able to learn and just say to yourself, you got to do whatever it takes. Some some people don't have access to certain equipment. Some people don't have access to uh, certain techniques. And YouTube has become a resource that allows people to say, hey, you know what? I can make this and maybe if somebody wants it, that's great. Hmm. I think that um, it's really important and I also back to what you were saying in regards to um, – in regards to uh, you, you know, you saw you saw these knife makers that made you think that your knives didn't look good. There's there are levels to this game, and as a knife maker or whatever, there really needs to be this you know appreciation of growth and figuring out. I got to do whatever it takes. Hmm. You know, I live in yeah. an apartment. I can't have an anvil. You know, or or I can't. You know, I want to make Damascus, but I don't have a power hammer. You know, it, there's. There's levels to this game and I think that it's very important to just kind of celebrate that growth and be, 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 uh, Supportive of you know, people trying to do this
4: kind of stuff. Yeah, oh, no, completely. And and I have to say, if it, if it wasn't for, for YouTube and seeing that first, I am pretty sure it was a Walter Sorel's video. Yeah, that, you know, I would never have made that first knife. You know, sure. And you know, no, it's I, exciting. Completely, it's a new world, you know. And you're you're excited, and you know, you you just you just want to be making knives all the time. And you have this big sort of equipment list of stuff that you think you desperately need. And it's, it's yeah, it's this whole new world opened up.
3: Yeah. It's incredible. So, so, so now what's your next step?
4: Next step. Wow. Wow. Okay. Personally, I've been finding it very hard to live in, you know, a very remote area of France. Um, not in a city anymore. Um, so it's very hard to sort of sell what I make. So Sorry. quite often I'll go, you know, I'll, t- I'll take a flight or whatever to, to a big city and I'll go around and I'll meet restaurants and I'll meet chefs. And, you know, we get commissions that way and I start making knives, that kind of thing, uh, which is great. Um, you know, and I've been really fortunate enough to speak with, you know, lots of amazing knife makers on the show. And I often ask that very same question, like, how do you scale things up? you know so running a business and chasing the dream of making knives every day they they're very different things i think um and i've been giving this loads of thought over the last year or so so i want to make a product i want chop knives to be a product business you know so something yeah. that can be packaged up and maybe even sold in a store but a product that's that's handmade but still affordable so something that's going to be the same each time um, not, not exactly the same, obviously, cause you'd be using slightly different materials for handles and so on. But right. the blade is, you know, the blade's going to be the same each time. So I'm going to start with it, with a steak knife. You know, in my mind, what I think is the perfect steak knife. So for the past six months, I've been working on dozens of prototypes, which I've been, you know, making and taking to various restaurants to speak with the proprietors and chefs and so on for their opinion. Now I, I want to make a knife that, you know, it's close to as perfect as you can get, and you know, I think I've got there so i've I've got a design which is beautiful to look at it's razor sharp you know it cuts cuts like butter it 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 it's lovely, but as we all know, a handmade knife takes a lot of time um and this can take make them you know too pricey for most people so that's right. the challenge you know making something that's handmade beautiful, does its job perfectly um but still affordable to most people right. So I've been visiting factories over Europe for the last few weeks um, to talk to them about my plans and, you know, take as many tips as I can from them of, of of how they set up their sort of production lines. So I think I've got a solution. I'm going to produce these knives um, by cutting by, well, first of all, buying steel in bulk straight from Sandvik. Um, so I use a 14C28N um, stainless. Um, right. I get the steel cut to profile with with water jets. Um, and I know a lot of people may think, ah, oh, well, you're not making a knife, but you know, this is a blank. This is, you know, it has no bevels. It's literally just cut to shape. And that's the bit for me that takes the most amount of time, you know, um, to get things precise every time that takes a lot, a lot of time, not too much skill. Strangely, it's just time. Um, yeah, it's time. Yeah, so, so I cut down that time to manufacture massively, you know. So I still hand grind the bevels, I still stabilize my own wood, still make my own mosaic pins. And I, you know, I do all the heat-treating in-house, but all of those actions can be done sort of in bulk, really, you know. Right. So it's, I've even remodeled my, my studio to accommodate for so a factory-like production line. So each knife is then going to get the attention it needs, you know, for the final fit-up. Um, and I think this is the kind of thing that a big factory can't really do because, you know, maybe they're using robots or whatever they're using, but I'm using natural materials, particularly for handles and so on. You know, and they're never uniform. So, you know, by doing this by hand, I can make sure that every single knife then is, you know, it's perfect, it feels good in the hand, and, and it's, you know, it's sharp as a razor. They're all right. hand-sharpened, too. So today, I've launched an an Indiegogo campaign where people can order a knife or a set of steak knives, and that's going to really sort of kickstart the production. Wow. So that, yeah, that's what I've been so working on. So they pre-ordering. People will be pre-ordering your knives. Well, I'm ready to go. So the last six months, this is what I've been doing. So I've been taking very Whoa. few sort of customer orders. Um, the workshop has been completely remodeled. So I can just work on batches after batches after batches. Um, so in essence, yeah, I suppose it's pre-ordering. Um, that's it. That's it. That's it. Oh my God. It's unbelievable. We mentioned scaling things up, right? So, you know, as you, you know, a handmade knife, you know, even if it has been profiled by a water jet, it still takes a lot, a lot of time, you know, particularly if you're aiming for the, you know, the kind of quality which I'm aiming for. Um, so I think I can produce maybe a dozen to 15 knives on my own per week. You yeah, know, which is fine. I said, that's fair. That's it, fair. It, but it's not, you know, it's not a production line, you know? Right. But my little tiny village here in France, it's got one of the oldest forges in Europe. But um, sadly, huh. it's, it's no longer a, a forge, it's a museum. You know, still has a forge, it's set up as a forge, but it's now just a museum. But what it does mean is that I'm surrounded by lots of fourth and fifth generation knife makers, you know? Right. And they've all now turned their hand to farming. They're struggling, you know. You know the demands of you know mass production in the farming world. It's very hard on a small hmm. small farm. So if I need to produce more than a dozen or fifteen knives per week, which I'm hoping is the case, um, you know, I've got skilled knife makers on tap. You know, and who knows? Maybe I can get you know my little town making knives again. You know that would be something this worth is like working some
3: for. sort of mo- this is like a movie.
4: This is like <laughs> one of those Irish movies where you bring the you bring the factory back. And- but it's happened in lots of villages around France. You know, and the, Has Fre- it? the French got a rich history. So you know, Laguiole knives—that's a very small village in France. You know, tiers. You know, very similar there. Openel. Huh. Openel isn't the village, but the actual village. You know, it's all the local people making knives there. So wow. it's, you know, it's happened before in France, and. um I've, I've, yeah, I've got big ideas. <laughs> so that's incredible. I, I, I love the whole story
3: and I love the idea of, of, um, what you're doing. And I, and I, I wonder, I'm just asking, just curious, but just because I don't know, I know a little bit about Kickstarter and I know about So for the Indiegogo, do you have a set goal that you need
4: to make in order for this to happen or? It's slightly different with Indiegogo to Kickstarter. So with Kickstarter, you say, let's say I need ten grand for this to happen. Right. If you don't get back in up to ten grand, it doesn't happen. Simply, right. you, you don't get any money, and nobody gets any of the any the rewards, you know. Um, but with Indiegogo, it's slightly different. So let's say I say, well, actually, it's seven and a half grand. That's what I'm saying in euros. That I need to, for this to happen. But if it doesn't happen, it's not a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. But if this doesn't happen, people will still get those rewards because then I can just simply hand grind them anyway. Right, you know? right, um, right, right, right.
3: Okay, great. Because right, if it so, if you're if you're
4: if you're putting in for for some steak knives, you're getting them. Yeah, and the thing okay. is, if it doesn't happen, that's because it hasn't. I haven't got to the volume that I require. So right. if it's not getting to that volume where I need to produce these in that way, I can just produce them how I've normally made knives anyway. So it's right. a win-win. You know, it, it it just works either way. Wow, I like this idea. I like this
3: idea very much. You know, my business model is similar in the sense that we do a lot of pre-ordering. So I don't mm. use. IndieGoGo, but like when we do chef series knives, if I do a series of twelve, we pre-sell them before I make them. Yeah, and and usually I'll start making them once we've sold four. Like if we if we can sell four of them, then I'll start to make them, and then you know that'll make my life a lot easier because then no one's kind of dumping money down um, it, exactly. Exactly. These rolling, and then they're guaranteed for the thing. Well, I, I'm listen. It, I think it's great, and I and I heard a little something in your voice when you when you were talking about the handmade thing, and 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 it's it's there are, like I was saying before there are levels to this game, yeah. And sometimes you have to do whatever it takes. And I once had an old knife maker come into my shop, and and I was grinding a bevel, um, and I had a, I had the ta- I had the table on the platen on the grinder, and I actually uh, had clamped my knife to uh, a very square. Two by four, Hmm. and then I was using that two by four as my guide, just to keep myself at the same uh, the same level when I was grinding.
4: Hmm. And the first
3: thing the guy said is, "All you're cheating." And I was like, "What are (laughs) you talking about?" He's like, "Ah, you should be doing a freehand." I was just like, "You need to you need to leave. This is you know you have to do whatever it takes. Efficiency and doing taking some little steps out of this process allows you to." Allows you to kind of focus on the things that really matter, and part of that mattering is being able to provide something for people at a reasonable price, and to have your, you know, your sincerity involved.
4: Yeah, yeah, and you know, I asked that question on on Instagram. I did an Instagram story, you know, when is a knife handmade? And I said, if it's been profiled on a water jet, is it still handmade? Um, And it was amazing, actually. So I'd say probably ninety five percent said yes. Um, But yes, it is.
3: Yes, it is handmade.
4: Yeah, yeah. But those who didn't, they were sending me a message as to say why they think it isn't. Um, and they were all very, very sort of valid reasons. But, you know, how far do you go to handmade? You know, are you sort of smelting your own steels? You know, well, where does that go, you know? Well, that's the next thing
3: because, you know, uh, it's that's interesting that you say that too because – uh recently I was uh, I was making some integral knives. I was forging some integral knives, hmm. and I posted a picture of, the, of me forging the integral knives. And somebody had responded with, "It's great to see somebody actually forging their knives like they used to," because and I'm and I'm paraphrasing. I don't really remember exactly, but, but um, uh, because now people just grind knives out of you know they just take a piece of steel and they grind knives out of it. Yeah. And what I had said, and that's an old. That's an old, you know, that's actually the elephant in the room in regards to a lot of knife makers and bladesmiths and whether you're calling yourself a knife maker or a bladesmith Hmm. is this concept of, of, um, stock removal versus, versus forging. And a lot of people that this guy had basically said, yeah, forged knives are where it's at. And, and I said to him very, you know, with peace and love, you know, there's nothing wrong with stock removal knives. Some of the best knife makers in the world make stock removal knives and I'm not going to name them out, but you'd be shocked and there's nothing wrong with it. So you get to the point where you're asking, what's the, what's the, what's the difference? What's the gain in regards to being able to provide something for a customer that's of a high quality steel, you know, Bob Kramer gets a triple beam balance to make his steel and he 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 uses powder and he 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 you know he was you were saying he smelts it down in an induction furnace. Hmm. You know that you you there are certain levels that you can't just can't do. And if you're able to if you're able to do stock removal because you what you're trying to provide is something affordable, if you're trying to do stock removal because you feel like you will get a better product, like say with stainless steel, sometimes it's, you're going to get it for – if you have to make a nine-inch chef knife with a two-inch heel, you really got to work like a dog hmm. to, to, forge, to forge a knife that long, uh, especially if it's stainless steel. It's a whole production too. So where are your gains and where are your losses and how can you be as efficient as possible and provide a product to someone who wants to buy your knife, a friend of yours, a family member, whatever, and not say, I want to buy your knife but I don't have three grand. You know, it's like, it's, that's the the issue.
4: That's the, there's levels of consumer, right? So you've got, you know, right. you've got the 40 grand Bob Kramer knives. You've got the, you know, a couple of grand, you know, if you look, I think it's the com where they take people's knives, you know, very high end knives and they, and they sell them. Um, I think they're based in Dubai. Um, but they're, you know, they're sort of two, three, four grand knives, um, you know, you've, you've got the sort of high-end store knives, which may be, you know, sort of three, $400 or whatever. Right. Um, and then you've got, you know, you've got the shit. You've got the, you've got the, you know, right. the Chinese press stuff, you know? Right. So there's, there's levels of consumer. And I think as long as you're being completely honest with the consumer, they know exactly.
3: what's what. Exactly. That's the most important thing. It doesn't really matter what your level is as a blacksmith or a bladesmith or whatever. It's the, it's the, it's the concept of being, you know, genuine and sincere and giving someone, um, you know, your, what you believe in it and you want them to believe in you. This show is brought to you by the makery, the podcast network for makers.